I'm Sue Brain, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to this second series of Embracing Your Mortality, which also coincides with Dying Matters Week. I have a fantastic lineup of guests, all of whom are speaking from their hearts about what it means to them to be living more consciously for a better world. Some are deeply involved with building community and working with environmental issues. To find that positivity, to find that unique gift is the essence of making the world a happier place. Some speak about death and dying. We are all going to die and we ignore that at our peril. Others are holistic doctors and healers. One is involved in helping children to understand their feelings and another is championing women in business. When you are kind and loving to yourself is when you are most able to be a benefit to other people. And I'm most grateful to Colin Gilbert's family, who've given their permission to publish his interview about dying, which I did with him shortly before his death. Sorry, this journey, none of us are getting out of alive. All of us will go to that door. But it's how we approach that door. And if you haven't already, don't forget to listen to the first series of Embracing Your Mortality podcasts. Links to my guests in both series can be found on my website, suebrain.co.uk. Even though we're going through really challenging times, I hope all these conversations from both series inspire you to embrace your mortality so you too can live more consciously for a better world. I am particularly delighted that my first guest is Toby Nolan. I have an abiding memory of Toby, then age 16, taking me on an impromptu and remarkable nature ramble. Since then, he's become an award-winning journalist, explorer and biologist who produces wildlife documentaries with Silverback Films based in Bristol. For the past four years, he's worked as an assistant producer on BBC One's A Perfect Planet, a five-part series narrated by Sir David Attenborough. He is currently producing a new and innovative wildlife film for Netflix, and that's all he can say about it right now. So watch out for it. I've been obsessed with all things wildlifey for so long. It's hard to kind of pin it down to a single inciting moment. I, I have really early memories of just being in the garden, picking up snails and picking up wood lice and looking at them really closely and really wanting to feed the birds and help the birds and just be outside and identify plants and press plants. And then I started kind of bird watching when I was about 11. It's always just been the biggest part of my life. It's just natural for you it's to just, feel like this. I wouldn't work on anything else. I wouldn't work in TV in any other part of it because for me, it's just all about natural history and wildlife. And I, I think that is my, that's the be all and end all for me. It's just so full of endless wonder and surprise and fascination. And we know st still so little, but the information we do have available is mind blowing already. And it's just, it's just, it's just infinite surprise and detail what's the most mind-blowing thing for you then that you're experiencing often it's the little things it's the real little things so we did this shoot for the perfect planet to peru to film fire ants 
rafting. I don't know if you saw the sequence, but they basically, you've got these three millimetre uh, little ants. And when the forest floods in the Peruvian Amazon, the whole forest is just inundated. And these ants have got nowhere to go. They kind of boil out of the ground and they come together and they link arms and legs in this incredible sort of Gore-Tex-like fabric-like structure. And they, they're sort of holding hands and join together and form a raft, a living floating raft. And they, they float the whole colony out with the queen in the middle and wow. all of the little larvae held suspended on the raft. They just float out on, on the current and just hope for the best and then just get washed up into a branch or a tree and then just and then just make their way up and find a new place for the colony but it's so bonkers when you see it and you see it you know you use these these macro cameras to kind of expose the detail of it the level of cooperation at the level of this tiny and i guess i guess this comes into animal consciousness in a way it's like most people would argue that an ant isn't doesn't show any degree of consciousness but collectively the colony pulls off something incredible for, for the preservation of the entire group of ants. And it's just such an amazing behaviour. And it, the, the raft is, is hydrophobic, so it, it kind of just bobs up and down and they kind of press down on the meniscus of the water. So, they, so they're just sort of suspended. But it's extraordinary. And if, if one ant gets separated from the raft, it loses its water-repellent structure. So that, that ant, ant sinks and gets trapped below the water and gets picked off by the fish. But together, they're completely unbeatable and unsinkable. And they're amazing. You know, they're these tiny little brown ants. Yeah. They give you a nasty nip. The ones we were filming, you'd see 10,000 in a, in a kind of 50 pence piece Right. Wow. So you've got this whole incredible societal yeah. happening, this just event happening on, on a scale like that. Wouldn't that be amazing if human beings could learn from the ants yes. to behave in a way that actually we all together yes. can help each other survive, but it isn't about the, exactly. the individual, it's about the collective. I mean, what a lesson for us. Yes, exactly. The strength in unity. It's extraordinary, actually. And, and, and you know, th this is insects showing that to, to perfection, and ants really do. Are there animals and insects that you've come across that actually do the same kind of thing, maybe in a different way? But when it, on, on the insect macro level, there's lots of sort of surprises like that, where we always assume and say that animals that small and that's kind of insignificant have no consciousness and no sort of you know no level of complexity that deserves a label of intelligence but the behaviors they exhibit in terms of looking out for each other as a colony and and mm. finding food it's just it's so complex and so surprising and so finely tuned over you know millennia um mm. I think we can we can learn so much. I, I I think learning about those sort of stories makes me feel really insignificant in a really healthy way. Because it fills us full of awe. 
A-W-E, doesn't it? It's a bit like, I mean, in a completely different way, but standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon, I remember feeling totally insignificant. And when you see something in nature behaving in that incredible way, which is way beyond our capability. That's what I love about the wonderment of natural history is it's a continual, there's so much to learn. And as, as soon as you put the microscope down on something or you kind of put something close up to the lens and you just study a small leaf or insect society or or some sort of mutualistic relationship in the soil, you know, there's there's immediately such a level of complexity and, Mm. and surprise that I think we, it's really healthy for us to keep thinking about how big and how complex the world is without us and aside from us. Do you feel that mammals are able to, have you ever seen uh, mammals doing something like uh, as sophisticated as the ants are doing? Or do you think mammals are, inverted commas, gone beyond that? They do it in um, a different way. That's a really good question. Um, I think, it, I feel like it with mammals, it is always done a different way. I, th- I think... I've never seen anything like anything that community orientated with, uh, you know, compared to the fire ants. I've never Mm. seen that sort of level of cooperation. There is great, great cooperation within mammals, particularly mammals that are hunted by other mammals. I think mammals look out for each other a lot. There's wonderful adaptations of of prey animals that are that are hunted and and that that you know warn each other and have many different warning signals. Yeah. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, I mean, so you've got on East Africa uh, in in the plains of East Africa, you've got gazelle species that are Thompson's gazelles and and the impala uh, that are, that are hunted. You've got so many different prey species, actually, as well as the gazelles. You've got the topi and wildebeest, black wildebeest, blue wildebeest, eland, you know, oryx. And they all have, all of these different species have many things in common. And they, they all have of displaying advertising threat to each other, to, to other members of the same species and to other species as well. I mean, you've been travelled virtually all around the world now, haven't you, studying animal behaviour in some capacity and filming it. And when you kind of come back and see human behaviour, how do you feel about witnessing the animal behaviour and then Mm. witnessing our behaviour? I mean, it it sort of just drives me more and more to just be fascinated with wildlife because there's, there's, there's just objectively you know with other species you're just objectively looking at survival I, what i what i love i, I great or i always take kind of great solace in it, it, being in nature and working with other species is that you work with other species and there's this level of presence that i really envy in other species other than humanity because that thompson's gazelle is existing it's 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 eating, it's judging threats on a day-to-day basis, it's working out what to do next for its mate, but it's not getting anxious and neurotic about COVID or the, the problems of the times or, um, you know, the Trump administration. Or There's just a level of freedom that, mm-hmm. that you have in just existing because you're there to exist in a kind of... Do, do you know what I mean? There's a sort of mindful presence that I really envy with other species that I don't feel like we we have. I suppose we must have been like that when yes. we were hunter-gatherers. 
Yes, exactly. For whatever reason, we evolved beyond that. I think that's the theory. I think we've lost it. I think, you know, for the first 200,000 years of our existence, we we were no different. The boost in our brain size and our cognitive revolution and now this sort of mismatch of how to use it to survive, uh, it's left us with all sorts of problems, hasn't it? And too much to think about and worry about. We sort of evolved beyond ourselves, if you like, yes. into something that is very, very unconsciously aggressive, I think. This aggression, I know, plays out in the animal kingdom as well, but it feels a completely different aggression in humanity. Yes, I agree. I agree. I think, I think there's a lot more aggression than there ever would have needed to be when we were in hunter-gatherer mode, isn't there? Because... Yeah. The aggression is sort of manifesting from our minds having, you know, not, not being kind of fully absorbed on survival mode. This sort of, this sort of, that's the yeah. overflow of effect, isn't it? In a way. Yeah, I'm very interested in the whole concept of what helps us to live more consciously for a better world, and I'm very keen to ask you about how you feel that animals can help or animals or insects or in whatever capacity they come, how can they help us to do that? It comes back to that presence thing. I, I really feel like being in nature and spending more time in nature helps us to be present because we we are just in the moment. We're just absorbed with what's happening around us. And we're also seeing other species that are just doing what they do to get by and and, the, and they're completely present you know you 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 what you look at a dog a dog is not being anxious or neurotic of the diseases of tomorrow or worrying about its life expectancy it's just living joyously from one second to the other and it's such it makes them a great joy to be around doesn't it because you, you kind of it's kind of infectious for people you get that in spades from being in nature and and around other species because you just it's just a continual source of guidance in, in terms of kind of just being present and you know just being part of the world organically just, organically and mm-hmm. i think that's that's a big thing for me it's just for for me i mean this is getting very deep now but i but i think for me the meaning of life the you know the purpose of existence is in is completely it's enough for me to just know that I'm part of this whole fabric and I'm composed of the same 28 minerals that that tree, that flower, that that bumblebee and that dog is composed of. And we're all just part of this continuous flow of minerals from one life form to the next. We're all completely interdependent on each other. We're all very much related to each other and it's extraordinary. And I I think for Mm -hmm. me, that's enough. And I find it a big source of peace. Where are you with climate change and what's and the changes in the our environment that we're all witnessing right now? It's not a great state we're in. This is sort of the last chance saloon now to make real radical changes across the board. I mean, many scientists have said that this is the last year. You know, it, it's been too late for a long time, but this really is the 11th hour now. And COP26 in Glasgow later this year is the kind of final chance, that summit, to make massive changes. Otherwise, it re- we really are sort of in serious trouble, our species as well as many, many others. What do you mean by serious trouble as a, a biologist? 
I mean, in terms of climate change, the effects are just 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 sort of enormous and so far reaching. I think the biggest one for me is is just kind of global ecological breakdown. So with big scale changes, you've got species demise and ecological interruptions uh, in, in most habitats. And that just feeds back into making the world a less habitable place. And, you know, our dependence and our, our existence and many species existence depends on diversity. It depends on living in the most diverse world we can. The changes that the pollution that we are presenting this planet with erodes that diversity and makes it less less possible to support life. It's just, yeah, it's just that simple. Species have become extinct before as the planet has progressed, but not against this backdrop of toxic pollution. Mm. And that's what we're dealing with, which is so different, isn't it? There have been mass extinctions in the past, but it's never been caused by a single species. It's been tectonic movement under the Earth's surface, or it's been you know, changes, atmospheric changes, or it's been extraterrestrial bodies, but it's never been, it's certainly never been a single species bringing it on. But the difference is it also makes it the first reversible one, potentially. It makes it the first one that we can actually stop and do something about because it's us that's creating it. So um, it's a kind of unique position we're in. We're creating our own demise, but we also have, for, you know, it's the first time we have the foresight to be able to see it happening and stop it. Mm. I mean, this is what David Attenborough is saying, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's been very vocal recently about mm. it. Which is a kind of good thing for us all because he is a such a respected voice. I mean, life changes and, and extinctions happen. And I mean, it's part of the continual flux of this, isn't it? But what I really do believe is that if there's if there are extinctions that we are causing because of our just lack of care and lack of respect and that there are there are alternatives you know there are alternative paths and methods to pursue that don't create extinction and that don't um, push species to the edge then we should absolutely make the extra effort to to take those paths because it, it's it's just it's just creating problems for ourselves you know we are not separate from mm. the natural world we are absolutely part of it we are the natural world this whole concept of life being on this planet and this that i mean you have seen so much evidence of different forms of life most people just see it in their garden or they go for a walk or they go and you know go on a boat and see it in the sea but you've seen it in the amazon rainforests and up mountains goodness knows where where would you say that you know this planet is here to experience life and are we necessary no because there was life for four and a half billion years before us so the earth would get along absolutely fine without us um yeah, we're, we're not i mean we may assist the 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 survival of just a very few species cows have done very well from us as of chickens not very happy but they're very successful but uh, no i mean you, you don't need humanity for life on earth and to answer your first point i think we i think earth itself it it almost it is almost like it it's supposed to be full of life because 
it's in such a unique position. It's so rare in, in the universe. We keep looking at exoplanets. We keep looking, you know, on every star we can find. But nothing still has the same exact cocktail combination of factors as Earth does. You know, we've got a molten core, uh, which, which means we have incredible central heating system inbuilt into our planet. We have this incredibly thin but properly protective little atmosphere, which is just perfect for keeping out harmful ozone and other things and sun and UV. And we have an atmosphere that's composed of the right chemical components for, for, you know, life to be able to thrive. And we have all the right minerals on board. We're just the right distance from the sun, not too Mm. far, not too far close. We're just the right size that our gravity doesn't pull in a million harmful things We've got an, you know, a security blanket of an asteroid belt in the solar system that kind of takes up a lot of stuff, and and we have lots of water, um, and we we have oceans and ocean currents which regulate our weather, and there, there are so many mm. really unique things about our planet that make it just the most perfect planet for life to to just proliferate on, mm. and we've never found anything close to that before. No, and probably won't for a long time to come, I would imagine. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, who knows what's out there? I mean, it's wonderful to think about it, but the reality is, you yes. know, we're, we're this tiny little speck. And it does, we yeah. do need to take care of it. We really do. Apart from your beautiful fire ants, what other species have really touched you? Um, there was one other species that we filmed for a perfect planet, and it was it's the Galapagos land iguana. And they do this incredible journey, this incredible migration, um, all the way up uh, this one of the most active volcanoes on the planet, uh, on the island of Fernandina in Galapagos. It's so hostile. No, no one lives there. It's, it's completely barren. They do this just bonkers journey. And it's a 10-day march up the flanks of this volcano. And then they get to the crater, and it's two miles vertically down. And as they go... There's earthquakes just continually reshaping the crater walls, rock falls, blasting them as they go. It's incredibly dangerous. It was really dangerous for us to follow as well, actually. It was really scary. And they go deep down into the crater of this volcano just to lay their eggs in the ashy floor of the volcano because the ashy substrate is just the right temperature to incubate their eggs. And it's just amazing. And it's like, how did that even start? You know, one iguana must have done it and then her babies hatched from that and then she just kept coming back because she learned it was a productive thing to do but then the babies have got to do the same journey back out of the crater and the crater is fast you know it's not this little thing and the the walls are just huge epic i mean it was such an expedition to follow them down there uh and it was so few only 20 to 30 humans have ever been down into that crater because it's just so it more people have been on on the moon when you were doing that, knowing that and knowing how dangerous it was, you're following your passion and you wanted to film the iguanas because, wow, did you kind of think, well, God, if I go now, I'm doing something I absolutely love? <laughs> yes, yeah, sort of, sort of. But then I also thought, actually, I'm, I don't really want to die on this one. There's a lot of other things that's what I like to do, but <laughs> there's something so appealing about the kind of risk of it as well because it's it's a real adventure and it it's something that so few people have ever 
had the chance to do. And it was an amazing journey. It was an amazing part of the world. But it, I did feel incredibly, because I was responsible for this team of people going down. You know, it was one thing, me getting in and out, and I kind of was okay with that. But I just remember the day when we all got out of the crater and I just, it was one of the best days of my life because I was just mm. so happy that we'd all got out alive and we'd all got out unscathed and unscratched. It just felt like a huge relief, you know, a big weight off. When you look at the way human beings are behaving, how do you feel about that? Having been being so close to life Really, in in the sort of the authentic meaning of life, it can be really sad to to to, to just see how people aren't connected to wildlife and to other species, mm. and and in doing so, not connected to themselves. I feel like the only way for us to connect truly to each other and as a species is to know our place among other species and and on the planet and in the galaxy. In my view, you've got a kind of real privileged view of not just nature, but also of human behaviour. Yes, I think also what it shows to me is that there's so much unseen damage. There's so much, there's damage that we talk about, there's damage that makes the news, but there's so much damage that we just, we just have no idea about our knock-on effects on other species, you know, throughout the planet. I mean, it's, we have no idea how we're affecting those iguanas and their journey down into the volcano. And it may be very little, but it may be that climate change is changing the chemical composition of the, the ashy mm. substrate, or it may be that, for, for instance, those iguana eggs, that, you know, with reptile eggs, they have to be incubated at a certain temperature. And a couple of degrees one way or the other makes the difference whether they're all girls or boys. I think, you know, changes in climate could be could have a huge Ooh. effect on something like on, on something like an iguana. I didn't know that, that that temperature yeah. dictates whether it's male or female. That's yes. extraordinary. It's really bonkers, actually. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Toby, when you look forward to your in your life, how old are you now? 32? 33. You're 33 yeah. and you look forward in your life and, and, and you're doing what you're doing now. What what sort of journey do you think you're going to go on? Oh, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm really enjoying the journey at the moment. I'm really enjoying seeing and learning more about the planet. I think inevitably my journey should should become increasingly more of a responsible journey and one that contributes increasingly more to uh, responsible products and features that have really important messaging. Um, I'd, I'd like to work more on feature films. I'd like to work more on one-off feature films. I mean, Netflix is an amazing platform for that sort of uh, responsible television and, and hard-hitting mm. cinema. I mean, you know, Seaspiracy is a good example, which is kind of gone completely viral and that's a really prominent issue it's been prominent you know lots of that it's kind of old news it's been around for a long time but it's it's the power of film that you suddenly every person you, you speak to who's watched it says i'm not eating fish anymore i'm done with fish and that's that's a an amazing thing for a, for a film to do that and that's the kind of thing that you would like to do to be a real influencer I out there so. about the natural world and and how we need to become much more aware of our behaviour. That would be an amazing legacy. It's the easiest thing to to just turn your eye to it. And, and it, it feels like the simplest thing. But if you live in a city or, or you live in a town, 
the next time you're passing a green space or a tree, just stop for an extra 30 seconds or a minute and look at that leaf or that hoverfly or that magpie and really look at the the green in that magpie's tail and the twinkle in its eye and the smartness of its feathers or the the intricacy and the detail of that leaf. There's just this infinite source of peace and clarity and optimism around us. And that's what that gives me. And it doesn't matter where you live, there's always plenty of of nature around us to, to be able to kind of soak in solace and inspiration from it. Nolan, award-winning journalist and wildlife film producer. My second guest is Justine Corey, a psychotherapist and group facilitator specialising in positive deep adaptation, which explores how climate change is psychologically impacting our lives. The mainstream relationship to death is a really unhealthy one. I've travelled quite extensively and lived in Asia and in other cultures where there's a very different relationship to death. You've been listening to Embracing Your Mortality and I look forward to you joining me again next time. You can find out more about me through my website, suebrain.co.uk. In the meantime, here's to us all living more consciously for a better world. The Embracing Your Mortality podcast was researched and recorded by Sue Brain and produced and edited by the Podcast Den.